Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. I want to zero in on one thing here. So this concept of addiction and the reciprocal narrowing, yeah, it's commonly... Um, Fiat currency. I don't know if you're familiar with this term. So it's not, not. Um, all of the the money that's used in the world today is a product of central banking. Right. Um, I'll try. It's a very rap, deep rabbit hole in and unto itself. I'll try to give the brief history here. So gold was chosen by the distributed distributed cognition of the free market as money historically. Right. Yeah. And it was chosen as money because. Uh, it exhibits a number of properties, but one of the most important of which is an inflexible supply. So no matter how hard we tried to produce gold of anything we try to produce in the world, we could increase its supply the least, oh, which is oh. to say it's the most resistant to inflation. So if I hold my wealth in gold, I don't need to trust anyone in the world. No one can counterfeit gold. It's the most counterfeit it's actually perfectly counterfeit resistant, but we could only increase its supply at say 2% per year based on its, right. its physical right. properties. So, so diminishing returns sort of headed. Is that what you're saying? Like diminishing returns uh, hit when you're trying to get more gold out of the, out of, out of the ground and stuff like that? Is um, that somewhat. So the, the real simple analogy with inflation is like, I, I use the Babe Ruth baseball card analogy. You know, if there's okay. 100 Babe Ruth baseball cards in the world, then each one has a value based on its scarcity or its supply, you know, the demand exceeding its supply. But right. if you all of a sudden go and discover or can counterfeit more of those cards, you can dilute the value of the existing 100, right? If I can go and counterfeit right. 20 more, then I can be effectively steal the value from the people that hold the other 100 cards. Does that make sense? It does, but uh, thank you. But I was, I was, I was, uh, I was asking about the first point, the, mm. the, the, the supply of it is inflexible. So I see why it's resistant to counterfeiting, but mm -hmm. I take it that gold is different from quartz, yes. which is relatively easy to gather up together or something. I don't yes. know if that's right, or not, but I'm just using that. Yeah, yeah, So is it so gold is somehow hard to get as a constant? That's that, right. That, as a function okay. of our time, because ultimately the economy right. is about our time. Like how right. we're trying to create more outputs per unit of time input, essentially. But gold right. is the most uh, inflexible commodity to increase the supply of. So no matter how hard we try, 
its supply increases the slowly and most predictably. So oh. another way to say this, sorry, I'm getting us all off track. It's the most inflation resistant money there's ever been, right? So inflation is the dilution of money. So any right. rational economic actor is going to hold their money in gold because no one can debase its supply, if you will. Okay. The problem with gold as money is that it's it's gold. It's heavy. It's physical. It's hard to transact across space. Yeah. yeah so a market function developed on top of it called warehousing, right? Put all your gold in the warehouse. The warehouse will issue receipts, paper receipts that are redeemable for gold. So now right. all of a sudden we can transact it across space very easily. And right. at any time you can go and redeem it, uh, redeem the gold from the warehouse with, with the paper certificate. The problem there is that you now need to trust the warehouse custodian, right? He can, If he issues more paper than he has gold and reserves, he's participating in a fraud. Right, right. right? And that's, so that became banking. That became <laughs> central banking. Governments right. always are commandeering this, you know, centralizing yeah. it, centralizing it. And in 1971, you know, we've gone on and off the gold standard throughout history, but the most recent one was 1971, where Nixon said no more redeemability for gold. So for the past 50 years, we've been on this fraudulent monetary standard where it's just paper basically accepted and transacted in under the threat of coercion and violence from government. It's like you, you pay right. your taxes with this, you use this, there are no competitors to this technology. Right. Um, and that gives government an unlimited ability to confiscate wealth through inflation. So every time you hear printing money, a central bank printing money, what they're in fact doing is stealing from the productive economy. It's a, okay. it's a shadow tax is what they call it. Right. So I, sorry, long background there okay. on fiat right. currency is that fiat currency is money that cannot be redeemed for gold. So it's just oh, by fiat. I get it. By fiat. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Accepted by fiat. But many economists have analogized uh, fiat currency and the, the expansion of its supply to addiction, actually. So once wow. you start printing money, like it's, it's, say there's an economic contraction, it's very easy to just go out and print money and kind of paper over the losses, right? It, there's an immediate stimulative gain, like kind of like a right. drug or an alcohol or anything right. else. Right. Right. It gets the economy moving again, but it defers and exacerbates the long-term cost of that. You know, it, it, there's a cost associated with uh, producing something for nothing, if you will, just printing money. And it leads to, over time, you need to print more and more money with each economic contraction. There's diminishing returns to the money printed, oh, right? So there's right. diminish, there's less economic activity stoked per unit of money printed with each round of printing. And it ultimately right. culminates in hyperinflation. So like that's what's happening in Venezuela today. There's cash in the streets, cash in the gutters, wheelbarrows of cash. It's meaningless. It's lost its meaning. It doesn't serve its function as money. So I was just curious, <laughs> this narrowing, reciprocal narrowing sounds a lot like the process of inflation, where it's like every time you print money, you have, you're constricting your options. Like, you know, you're going to, yeah. the money has less meaning. So it's, it has less of an effect in the economy. And then it's almost, it's working its way towards the inevitable inevitability of having to print even more money. Right, because yeah. you've you've damaged the economy again. So it's kind of like the the alcoholic taking one more drink. He's that much more likely to take one more drink, yeah. even though it has a diminishing return on him. So, so this is very interesting. So, it sounds like 
it sounds like, well, this is something I, I, I independently think is the case for theoretical scientific reason, but it sounds like you're saying something that converges, which is I, I'm not only interested in how individual cognition can be self-deceptive and self-destructive, I'm very interested in sort of what the opposite of the scientists on Mars are doing. I'm interested in how distributed cognition could also be self-deceptive yes. and self-destructive. Yes. And I, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't assume, we shouldn't assume that the intelligence of distributed cognition, I guess what you're calling the market mm. is classical. It's not, it's bounded. It has to be bounded mm. and therefore it's going to be always threatened by self-deceptive, self-destructive tendencies. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to its intelligence, it, it needs to, it needs to cultivate a collective rationality and perhaps even a collective wisdom in order to deal with the inherent tendencies towards self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. Yes. Is that, is that landing with you? Uh, yes. And I would say that that is the pattern recurrent throughout history is we abuse the money supply. Those in power monopolize and abuse the money supply until the integrity of the money supply is effectively broken. You go into a hyperinflation type event, and that presages civilizational collapse. Because if right. we consider the money, it's the medium through which we're engaging in trusted exchange with strangers, right? You make this point that we're yeah, surrounded yeah, yeah. by strangers. Like that's yeah, not yeah. normal. Yeah. Well, yeah. a lot of the reason we can hang out with strangers and go and conduct ourselves normally and peacefully is because the money works, right? If the money didn't work, you'd have a much harder time getting along with strangers, right? And you can see this in Venezuela. They're robbing their neighbors. They're eating cats and dogs. It's just, it's, it's chaos, right? You regress or, or to the, this. Or the Weimar Republic in the 30s in Germany. Yes, uh, exactly. The Weimar Republic, exactly the same thing. So, um, and, and the, the wisdom there, I think, would be, and this is what I hope, you know, this is why we have such high hopes for something like Bitcoin. It's almost like, the integrity right. of the money supply and the integrity of civilization are inexorably linked. You break one, you break the other. Oh. And Bitcoin is the first money in history with a supply that cannot be changed. No one can change it. There's a lot of things to unpack there, but just take my word yeah. for now. There's 21 million, no one can change it. Um, and it, it almost seems like perhaps it could be and, you know, to use your lingo, the wisdom that breaks this cycle of addiction we have to manipulating money. Something wow. like that. Yeah. Wow. That's a very profound proposal. Yeah. Are, and, and I'm not trying to take the spotlight off of you. Are other people making converging arguments around Bitcoin? I've, I've talked to one person about Bitcoin, but they didn't actually explain it this way to me. Like the way you are putting it into cognitive terms makes it very interesting. Like, I, like there's a strat, I see people doing similar things on, in social media, on the internet about trying to come up with a different way to, 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 to have a meaning oriented uh, currency of communication and value rather than just an exchange currency. Uh, do, do you know what I'm talking about? Where attention is the currency. Yes, uh, yes. Um, I would is, say there, is there anybody we're talking about the relationship between those at all? Um, I'm, there's a lot of people talking about a lot of things related to Bitcoin. I can't say that I know all of them. I personally am trying to, uh, it's one of two things here. It's, it's maybe this is a conformity as well. It's like either 
Bitcoin is something much bigger than money, perhaps. Like it's almost like a social institution that is potentially disruptive to our conception of civilization. Like the institutions yeah. we have today, we may, they may not be relevant in the future on a Bitcoin standard. Or I guess the other way to look at it might be money is something much more intricately related. Like maybe it's a, something I want to talk to you about. Is it a psychotechnology? Is it not? You know, it's kind of like in our mind, but it's kind of not in our mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, that maybe that, you know, money itself is something much more indispensable to constructing civilization than we have, than we currently respect or understand. Okay. Well, let, let me try and give an, an initial historical argument that you're probably familiar with from my series that would strengthen that, that like strengthen the pertinence of that question you just posed. I think that's a really good question. So first of all, what is a psychotechnology? So a tool, technology is just a system of tools, right? A tool, a physical tool is something that is designed to fit me. Here's my tool from earlier and enhance my capacity. I can't carry around very much water in my hand, but I can carry a bottle in my hand, which can carry much more water, much more water in a stable fashion. So yes. what I do is I, I, I shape something to fit me and then enhance my ability. Yes. A psychotechnology is not designed to fit your body. It's designed to fit the way your cognition works. And what it does is it fits your cognition in a way that's like it's generated socially, like the tool is outside of you, right? And it's it's standardizable. Like mm. it will, it's designed mm. to work in terms of, you know, like common principles of how cognition works. That's mm. how it's different than your own particular skills. A psychotechnology can fit many people's minds and enhance their information processing, their problem-solving capacity. Mm -hmm. So a non-controversial example is literacy. Mm -hmm. right? So literacy is not natural to you, neither is it your particular skill. What we have is a standardized way of representing information and transmitting information that fits the way human memory and perception works, and yet it massively enhances your ability to solve problems. Mm -hmm. Think if I re what would happen if I reached into your mind and took literacy away from you. Most think of all the problems you couldn't solve, the ways you couldn't relate to your previous self or your futures, like you would be drastically shrunk as a cognitive agent. You, your ability I mean, to connect other people with can't even think away. without literacy, right? I don't, it, I don't even know how to imagine you not can. having it. You can. Oh, like, me, like a meditative type state? Well, no, no. I mean, remember, most people for most of history have been illiterate. Mm, but once gotcha. you once you but once you have literacy, you have so internalized that it. it's called the Stroop effect that mm -hmm. it's impossible for you to like if I hold this up and say don't read these words, you can't do it. <laughs> right? You can't do it, right? How'd you know? How'd you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, right, that's a psychotechnology. Now, here's the thing about psychotechnologies. They they are invented for very prosaic reasons, but like mm. we just did with literacy, they deeply permeate into our cognition that we, mm. that we become identified with them as they deeply empower us in distributed cognition. Like mm. literacy gives you distributed cognition with other people and also with other temporal versions of yourself. You can write to your future self and you can look back at things you previously have written. Mm. And that exactly. is how we do a lot of our work, right? It, it, we, we're networking through literacy, power. Yes. Okay, so they, they're they they're adopted, but they're like we internalize and we identify with them. 
And so what, what happens is it really, it's, it really empowers your cognition in new ways. And what, like, notice how, with, for example, if, if I took literacy away from you, your ability to track your own mind gets really shrunk. All you have is what you are aware of in introspection, which is like, right? Yes. Yeah. When you can write things down and note things down and yeah. journal and right, you can find many more of your own mistakes, many more of your own errors. You yes. can read other people's work about how to look for errors. So you become very aware of your, well, like, right? You can, you can, Precisely because it empowers you to debug your cognition, mm -hmm. you also become more aware of how buggy your cognition is. Right. Yeah. 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 And this, so that was one of this alphabetic literacy, like it's invented by the Phoenicians and then it's taken to the Greeks. And then the Greeks add vowels and they also standardize the direction of reading, which massively improves it. Yes. And, and it helps to drive what's called the axial revolution in Greece. People right. start thinking of themselves in fundamentally different ways. They start thinking of the world in fundamentally different ways. They're aware of how self-deceptive they are. Yes. And they're also aware of how much they can transcend themselves and learn about themselves. Socrates, know yes. thyself. All of this because of alphabetic literacy. But another psycho... Here's an interesting thing. Because it's both a physical technology and a psychotechnology. Same time, you've got mobile armies and trying to finance them through direct right barter is like ah, it's really hard. Mm. They invent money, right? And the money is invented for mobile armies, mm -hmm. right? Coinage, and so coinage, and you are talking about it. It's you know it's this massive you know power, mm -hmm. right? And and for all the reasons you've articulated, but it's also a second technology mm. because coinage makes you think in terms of an abstract symbol system. And it makes you do arithmetic and calculate about it. Yes. That isn't natural before coinage to everybody. Right, right, right. Yes. And the, the economists would say, uh, Austrians at least, economic calculation is made possible through coinage or money. And that's, yeah. so when you're, you know, what am I going to do today? You're planning a vacation or you're running a business. Like you're think this language of accounting, if you will. It's yes. made possible through the standardization of coins or money. And then, and, and there's other things like, you know, the Venetians invent double entry uh, account keeping yes. and they, they get a huge economic advantage, right? Or yes. you get, you know, Descartes invents Cartesian graphing and science, right? Takes, right? Psychotechnologies are tremendous and they, and they transform us way beyond their original intent. Yes. Way yes. beyond their original intent. So I Even, think, um, yeah, go ahead. So, sorry, I was just going to add mathematics. I mean, even more fundamentally, right? It's, um, I, I wrote some about the Hindu Hindu Arabic numeral system. When numerals, we discovered, yes. When we discovered yeah, the number yeah. zero, it just swept the world, you know? Yes, we, yeah. Try doing math with Roman numerals. Right. Try it. Yeah. It's I terrible. Yeah. With, yeah. yeah. So, boy. Yeah. So, that's the power of psychotechnologies. Now, the thing about money is it's really interesting, right? It's, it's like literacy in the way it links us together. Mm -hmm. And we can also, and it, it, it internalizes new ways of thinking mm -hmm. fundamentally. But it, it, but like you said, it's also something out there, mm -hmm. right? That belongs to, like belongs to distributed. Cloud. I, I on my own cannot make money. That doesn't make any sense. I'm right. on a, I'm on a yeah. desert island. Here's my money. Yes. Who the heck 
there. Like, there's no money. Right? <laughs> yeah. they, 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 like, my, my, like, you know, the, 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 the pieces of paper other than their museum value from the American Confederacy are not money. Right. right? They're historical artifacts and that's, but they're not money. Right. Yes. And so I'm interested in like what you're talking about. And I, what I'm doing is giving you a buttressing argument that money is a psychotechnology, but it seems to also be doing this other thing, which I suggested to you earlier, if I'm, if I'm understanding you. It seems to be mediating between individual and distributed cognition in some important way. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's a great way to look at it. Um, I would say that as in terms of you mentioned a tool is something that uh, facilitates our fitness to the world in some specific yeah, yeah. way, right? It us. Yeah, it fits yeah. us. It fits us better to the world. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I would say that money. I'm just thinking out loud that it it we could consider it a tool for trading our time in a very mm -hmm. basic sense. It's like you you go to work, you sacrifice your time for money in exchange for money. You then carry that money with the expectation that you can redeem it for similar sacrifices from others, right? Yeah, I can then yeah. take that money to the restaurant and they'll give me food or service or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's so the optimal money then, if, if, if money is a store house or a reservoir of time, or I guess you could say energy too, in a way, it's like you've expended yeah. energy, you're going to redeem energy. The ideal money would be as irreproducible as your time. Right. Mm. So, so mm -hmm. it should map on to the nature of time and energy um, in a thermodynamic sense, right? That, you know, second, yeah. second law of thermodynamics cannot create or destroy energy. Um, and that's another, that's, you know, why Bitcoiners think Bitcoin is such a breakthrough. It's the first asset we have that cannot be reproduced in any way. Even gold inflates a little bit every year. You know, there's 2% more gold every year. But with right, Bitcoin, right. you know with perfect certainty how much there will ever be. So it's an absolutely fixed supply. Um, and then I, I like this this concept where you get into the relationship between identity and empowerment in a way. It's like the more yes. the tool empowers you, the more you start to identify Very much. with it or through it, perhaps. And, and, then, and then we run into the problems that we talked about before. Yes. Right? That's the part that you can get self-deception at. So you have a function of identification. That's the key function of participatory knowing. Mm -hmm. And it's always bi-directional. I'm identifying myself and I'm, I'm assigning identities or, uh, or accepting identities from others, right? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things you just mentioned is that money allows us to, to speed up the co-identification process. Mm -hmm. I don't need to know everything about you and blah, blah, blah. You don't need to know everything about me. What, 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 what we have certain identities that we can rely on when we come together in money. And yes. so I, but the problem with a tool as it gets more powerful is, and as we identify more and more with it is we start to run greater and greater risk of falling prey to reciprocal narrowing. Self-deception. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, yes. That's so interesting because I was thinking that another definition for money is that it's a claim on savings or you could say a claim on capital so it's a claim on all the other tools if you have yes. the tool money you can go and redeem you have all the power in the world money is power you can go and redeem yes. claim the power that any other tool can offer you right you're jeff bezos you could build a rocket and go into outer space kind of thing so is it is that where people run an especially large risk of becoming too identified with money and that's why it's corrupting and yes. all of these yes. things 
Yeah, very much. I mean, so you're going to get you're going to get what we said earlier. You're going to get the problem of a univariate quantitative measure that's going to blind you to qualitative differences mm. and rob you of cognitive acuity in a very very powerful way. So you're going to lose discrimination. Um, one of the things that could happen is a relationship to money could launch you into what Fromm calls modal confusion, mm. uh, and that that is. You know that can be deeply destructive of human yes. So, and that is um, the cons- uh, like. I think it was a, a portion of love, right? Where you said there's eros, uh, something else, and agape. But there's this love of consuming. Like I love the bag of potato chips or whatever. That's versus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus the eros. love of, of of a reciprocal relationship where you're not clearly consuming your friends or your romantic partner. You want reciprocity. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Philia, Philia. Yes. Um, that's modal confusion then kind of confusing. No, I mean, modal confusion will often lead to confusions between the kinds of love. So, so there's a meta confusion between two confusions. You can be confused Mm. about what kind of love, um, you're pursuing. Um, I mean, I would say, for example, that a good romantic relationship should have a proper proportioning Mm. of erotic philia and agape. Ah, okay. And, And when people have it out of proportion, they're generally the, the 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 romantic relationship is going to start to go askew in gotcha. some significant way. So that's one kind of confusion. The modal con- so uh, we've been talking about how it's not in us or in the world, but a real relation between us and the world. Mm. The existentialists were some of the first philosophers to bring that back into prominence. Plato talked about it a long time ago, but um, so think about an existential mode. An existential mode is how you are running that process of co-identification, right? So you can, from distinguish between two modes you can be in, you can be in the having mode or the being mode. Mm. Neither mode is wrong morally, okay? So I just want to state that up front because people often leap to an incorrect conclusion. Mm. The having mode is the mode, uh, is built around needs that are met by having. You have to control things. You have to control them and potentially consume them. Air, water, food, yes. shelter, medicine, yeah. right? Just to give examples. If I, if, I, if I can't have those things, I'm dead, right? Yes, right. So what do I need to do about them? Well, I need to, I need to, I need to be able to right, manipulate those things very readily. So I need to be able to categorize them. And, and like, so if I can't find one marker, I can replace it with another right. like marker. And I know what to, I don't notice. I, I'm not, I don't care about all the aspects of this thing. I just yeah. need it as a writing implement, yes. right? I'm treating it categorically. So Buber calls this an I it relationship. Right. There's a particular kind of I I am because I'm relating to a bunch of it's right. And there's nothing wrong with that. If I don't treat, right. You know, if I, if, yeah. if I don't treat oxygen yeah. as it, I'm in trouble, right. I'm going to die. This is like so property want, rights in a way, the I, it, I mean. It could be, it could yeah. be. I, I, so that's interesting. So, so uh, let me just finish that. Yeah, please. Right. And so again, there's nothing wrong with it. So I'm using my intelligence to problem solve, to manipulate things, to have things. I can be curious because curious means I have a gap and I want to fill it in. I've got to have some knowledge to fill it. That's why you don't want curiosity prolonged. It becomes aversive. If you had a whodunit novel and you never could get to the end, you ah, that's horrible, right? <laughs> yeah. So, right, uh, all of these things, right? 
Now, compare that to what he calls the being mode. I, I, I think he should have called it the becoming mode. But I, I, So this, these are your developmental needs. These are needs that are not met by having something. Uh-huh. These are needs that are met by becoming someone. So, for example, I need to be more mature. Mm. I need to be wiser. I need to be more in love. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So these needs are not met by controlling things. They're met by undergoing transformation. These are being needs. And so those are dependent on not your ability to manipulate and control things, they're dependent on your ability to understand things deeply. Mm. And this is the I-thou relationship. Yes. Yes. So let's, where would you say I-thou? You would, you would say I-thou to your beloved. If you, I, I'm straight and I don't want to presume on you, but if I, if I were to say to my partner, I'm with you because you remind me of all the other women I've been with. I can easily replace you. I love being able to control <laughs> and consume you as I wear it, right? What's, what's happening with my relationship right now? Yeah, your toast. <laughs> your toast. Yeah. Right? And, and, and even if I, I think of her as a problem to be solved, that's yes. going to just yes. so instead, what is it I'm doing? I'm trying to, right? I'm trying to create a meaning, a bond between her and I, so yes. that she develops through me, I develop through her. She's a mystery to me that I wonder about. I don't right. want that story to come to an end. Yes. It's the opposite of curiosity. I wonder. Right, she keeps right, calling right. it to question my world and myself. I don't mean in a horrific way, but in a wondrous way. Right. And that is the space in which I can become more than I am now. She can become through me more than she is now. And we reciprocally open together. And grow. That's the wow. being mode. Yeah. Is it, is it, does it work in reverse then? If you, if you, you know, proclaim love for something that's the I it relationship that's modal confusion too. Like you fall in love with money or you fall in love yes, with yes, right? your so fishing boat. I don't know any, any item. Yes, right? exactly. Exactly. Robert. So if you try to satisfy a being need within the having framework, you're going to be deeply deceiving yourself mm. and frustrating yourself. So you need to be in love the way I just described it, but yeah. instead you have lots of sex. Right. Notice even the words we use. Right. 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 Being in love versus having sex. Being yeah. having. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And so, one thing I would ask people when we want to talk about perhaps the wisdom of money is: Is it helping you to discern the two modes and to interact into the two modes differently? Is it is it driving modal confusion or helping you resolve modal confusion? Right. Because money itself, I, I would I would suggest, is probably neutral as a tool, like all tools, right? Well, here there would be actually a lot of counterpoint to that. So here's another thing about fiat currency in general. The supply, we don't know what the supply is or what it will be. We, the, the amount of money that will be printed is completely arbitrary. No one knows. There's this total uncertainty in right. this tool that's intended to give us maximal certainty, right? You should be able to store your labor in this instrument that gives you pure optionality in the marketplace. But if you introduce the concept of arbitrary and unpredictable inflation, that optionality can be, and by the way, not just inflation, 
there's cases in like in India where they just deauthorize, they turn off the money overnight. So overnight, they'll say the 500 rupee banknote is no longer acceptable as money. So whatever oh. you, all the banknotes you thought you had under your mattress that you go and spend, they're gone overnight if it's fiat. Um, this, uh, I'm sorry, how did we, oh. oh well, what, um, I, what, what, I, what I was asking, let me, let me yeah, please. Is, uh, is so I was posing a question. I, or like, I wasn't making a proposition. I was asking. Yeah. I was asking if one of the one of the wisdom questions we could ask about money is, mm. and we can ask this both individually and collectively: Is it driving us into modal confusion, or right. is it helping us to distinguish the two modes and resolve modal confusion? Yes. So it was neutrality that I was going to zero in on. So when okay. money is arbitrarily reproducible, can be inflated at at the whim of bureaucrats, essentially. Um, it actually incentivizes the holders of money into consumerism, right? You uh, don't know the money's not going to hold its value. So you're incentivized so you to go and spend things. it uh, right, yeah, or right. invest it even like, so the game in, in economics currently is we're all trying to outpace inflation. The money loses its value all the time. I can't just hold money and have options. I have to go and put it in real estate or put it in stocks or anything to outpace the rate of theft being perpetrated on me through inflation. So this actually, this is the reason we have this consumerist society, which I want to talk about zombies. At some point, we're going to get into the mythology <laughs> of zombies because there's a lot of parallels there. Um, it actually induces market actors to be more consumptive and less focused on savings. And if you don't have savings in an economy, savings is what underpins all investment. So when I save money in the bank and it, you know, if it's gold and it holds value, that bank will also lend out that money to entrepreneurs at my discretion to invest in businesses so I can generate a return on my capital. But when you have money that just depreciates, there's no incentive to saving. So there's no incentive for investment. So you're just, instead of creating capital in the economy, we're consuming capital. And so the whole thing, you talk about this, you know, reciprocal opening, which I would say is capital accumulation in a way. It's solving yeah. more problems, things are becoming cheaper, we're becoming wealthier, et cetera, et cetera. The reciprocal narrowing in an economic sense would be capital consumption. It's we're we're consuming more than we're producing, things are getting worse, prices are rising, you know, uncertainty is increasing, people are fighting more. So I would just zero in on that, that it's not, it is intended to be neutral. Right, like just a tool, not, but, it's but, it, but the controller of the tool itself—they're they're manipulating the psychotechnology, actually. Yes. Which, when a central bank changes the money supply, they're changing the way you think. Right there, it's almost like a computer virus in your mind. They're saying, "Oh, we're going to print more money," which means you're now like, "I have to go buy more stuff." Or you're manipulating your salience landscape, both individually. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, so it's, it's, if that's right, I mean, the way you're presenting it sounds plausible to me, then that means that money is going to be enhancing modal confusion on a regular basis. Is, am I understanding you correctly? In its current fiat implementation, yes. Yeah. I think so. And, and you are proposing that something like Bitcoin could return it back to a state of neutrality as, as opposed to what it's currently doing of enhancing modal confusion. Yeah, it removes um, bureaucratic whim from the equation, right? It removes government control and coercion from money. So, because the, the other thing that's blurry here for me is 
not only are they distorting economic values, but money also carries with it interpersonal values in some way. We could say that because America is the dominant country in the world and we've exported our dollars everywhere, we've kind of exported our culture along with that. Yes. Um, which that gets into this blurry line of value versus values, which is another definition we have on the list. So yeah. um, I don't know. That's something I'm thinking about. I don't have a clear answer to that. But yes, the the to answer your question specifically, the Bitcoiner perspective, I believe, is that it would reduce modal confusion by reducing uncertainty from money. Right. It would just be more certain, more reliable. You can hold value across time. Uh, less risky behavior because again, if if there's if the money's inflating, you have to engage in more risky behavior and more consumerist to, behavior, more consumerist behavior just to preserve your wealth essentially. So um, it causes misallocation of capital, which is maybe economic modal confusion in some way. It's the economy is not doing what it's the self organizing economy would do. We we've this this element of coercion has uh, distorted it from its self-organizing ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I would I've I've had suspicions about there being no monitoring of a self-organizing system because self-organizing systems, just like your intelligence, your intelligence will on its own go askew. Yes. So the the so the trick is not the trick is not sort of to move to anarchy. Or, or something like that. The trick is to, well, is, is to get something analogous to rationality and, and to wisdom in the self-organizing system. So the, the system has the tools that help to ameliorate its own tendencies to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. Yes. Is, is, does that land for you, that proposal? Yes. Um, but I'm, I'm a bit, so when we say, I'm a little blurry here. So anarchy, the way I define that is, um, it's not no rules. It means no rulers per se. So right. it would be in, a, in an anarchic society, you'd have market actors voluntarily adopting rules that satisfy their needs without the threat of violence being involved. So I'm not sure if it's. Yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe that might've been the unfair term. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure actually. And we've never yeah. actually seen it. So the point would be, you want it to be as voluntary as possible, right? Sure. You, you want as little involuntarism or imposition as possible. And then the market will organize itself in the best way to the satisfaction of the most people. But how, like, let's, like, let's take one where, right, where, like the tragedy of the commons, right? Mm -hmm. you, you want to do stuff to try and mitigate against the tragedy of the commons because yes. that's where individual cognition and distributed cognition are at odds with each other and the self-organizing system can spiral into everybody losing kind of thing. Yes, I'm not going to claim to have a hard and fast answer to that, but the, the general Austrian economist answer would be, um, this kind of gets back to that I-it relationship, maybe the relationship right. between man and nature. That's what property is. That's what property rights are. It's saying, I've gone into the world and transformed this piece of land or river or whatever yeah. to something that's productive and valuable, right? I've, I've fused my labor with the natural world in a way that's productive for other people. I now own this thing. So if someone transgresses against my property, if they pollute it, right? If they dump, you know, the tragedy of the commons, if they dump 
nuclear sewage or something in my river, I can then sue them. So I can protect private property rights, incentivize human beings to protect nature, like the, the portion of nature that they're responsible for. So even in an anarchic society, um, that would really optimize for the preservation of private property rights, which seems, at least in theory, and again, I'm not an expert on this. You said that was an I-it relationship a few minutes ago, right? Was like, well, with nature, I'm saying, like the rivers in it, the land is in it. Um, but we also need the I-thou relationship with nature because we're ecological beings, right? We're not just economic beings. So how yeah, would well, we... How would we manage that? That, that would well, be, that th- would That's be- why I'm out on a limb when I'm saying I yeah. as property rights. Maybe it's I thou as well, because the other thing about property is it is your time. You own yourself, right? Which is I thou, I guess, like I own myself. <laughs> um, that's the most fundamental property, right? Is you own your time and you decide how to spend it in creating value. Oh, oh, so, But, uh, but I, I actually want to, I want to go back to what you said because, uh, and uh, maybe we disagree on this, but that would be interesting mm-hmm. uh, because I like the idea of an I-thou relationship because this is part of Heidegger's. I need the ecology to have a value for itself, independent of its value to me or any particular human being, right? Because it is also a vast, complex, multi-dimensional, self-organizing system. Mm-hmm. And the chances that I can just go in uh, as individuals and mess around in that and get it right. Like that's, that's very, very problematic. So there's got to be a way in which we can let the ecology like be for its own sake, like the way I have to ultimately let, let you be for your own sake. Yes. I hear what you're saying. Um, I, general position would be that um, I had a conversation with a guy recently about this, of taking a human-centric view of the world and that we want our environment to contribute to human flourishing. So when we talk about ecological collapse or disaster, it's not about us completely leaving the environment alone. We need to oftentimes, right? Let the forest grow, you know, whatever it may be. But what we're actually optimizing for is that nature can be of greatest service to us in a way that doesn't pollute or cause harm to us or the environment. No, I also want to be of service to nature. Yeah, it, like, I think I think it's reciprocal. I guess the what is the what am I trying to say? That the standard of measurement would be some human dimension, I think, right? Like quality of life or or something to that effect, which quality of life is largely premised on the health of nature in many respects. Hmm. So it's not like it's just give or take. There's there's reciprocity there. Yeah, you, I, I you measure the success in human terms, is what I'm, I think I'm trying to say. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Because we, sorry, one last example, we could maybe optimize for ecology if we just said, oh, let's just get rid of all the humans, right? <laughs> and that's clearly a bad outcome. So there's right. got to be some balance. Right, right. right. No, no, I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to pursue genocide uh, by any means. That's exactly. not that. uh, <laughs> but I was trying to get into something like a reciprocal opening where there could be mutual flourishing between human beings and the, and the environment. Yes. Agreed. Because. If we think that, if we say that relevance realization is a property of intelligence, which is ultimately a property of life, then there's lots of relevance realization going on independent of human beings. Right. That, that deserves a respect, just like yes. we respect each other's relevance realization. Yes, That's the argument. Yes. I, 
Yes, I, I agree with it. It's almost like the the procedural knowledge that we experience is deeper than the semantic knowledge, right? And yes. nature, nature has its own procedural knowledge that's exactly. way exactly. deeper and more ancient and more intelligent yeah. than us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is why we should emulate the ways of nature, by the way. And I think the Taoists got this right, you know, like they're just trying to live in accordance with nature. Yes. And the Stoics are too. That's and the Stoics, Stoics yes. 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 Very much. Yes. I, and those are two, those are two uh, philosophy slash religions from which I derive many of my, my practices of cultivating wisdom, both individually and with other people. Oh, so, yeah. Me as well. Yeah. So that resonates with me um, a lot. And then actually I have to think, Peterson for bringing me back to Christianity to a great degree. I grew up Christian, but thought it was kind of a silly fairy tale for a number of reasons, but he's presented it in a way that I found much more meaningful. So, well, maybe uh, I'd ask you to allow me at some time to uh, try and do the same with you with Platonism, uh, Neoplatonism, because uh, uh, I bet you, you would uh, see a lot of value in that. But uh, I, I like where this whole conversation has gone. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering where, we should go next. I'm finding this so deeply fruitful. Well, I agree completely. Um, maybe we can just, <laughs> the definitions took a bit longer than we thought. There's, I have three definitions left. Um, you tell me which ones we should define, if, if any. I think acceptation is pretty important. Yep. That comes yep, up a lot important. in your series. Yep. Maybe we can talk about value and or values. Right. How, how yeah. we think about those and how they pertain to human action in particular. And then finally, we kind of alluded to this earlier, but metaphysics. Yeah. So yeah. we have yeah. this metaphysics of subject object duality that's, yep. I mean, so deeply implanted in the way we think and perceive. Um, yes. That word is kind of big and scary for a lot of people, but maybe we could just uh unpack that one a little bit and i'll tell you i don't know if you've read this book leela by robert persig yet i uh, no i haven't read i've read uh part, large parts of zen and uh zen and yeah and i've talked a lot with uh Sevilla king i uh, if you if you have people who are interested in persig's work go to the youtube channel equality existence she goes through each chapter does commentary on it interacts with other people about persig how how would it be? What would it be like to try and live out uh, the the metaphysics of quality the way Persic recommends? So really? go to Sibella King's quality quality a space quality existence. That's her YouTube channel. Got it. I will she, definitely check that out. She and I have talked about the fact that Persic's notion of quality is very similar to my notion of relevance realization. Mm, that so that is. Interesting. I've recently read the book Leela and I'm doing a series now on Leela. I will definitely check that out. He makes a case for a metaphysics of quality or value that is yes. an alternative to subject object duality. So I've been yes. thinking a lot about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's deep connections to the relevant yeah. realization stuff I've been talking about. Uh, I, I have criticisms that, that you know, Sibyl and I are, are like, we have great affection for each other, so I'm, I'm not speaking out of turn here. Mm. I think Persig gets Plato wrong mm. um, in, in, in a couple of important places, um, uh, but but that's uh, but that that's something that we can maybe tease out. Yeah, I, I want to. Yeah, the I want to talk about the, about quality, value, relevance, 
intelligibility and being. And, mm. and, 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 and why do I want to talk about all of those for the fundamental reason is we are always implicitly using these when we're talking about meaning in life. Yes. So here's a preliminary definition for those of you who are scared about the term metaphysics. Metaphysics is the attempt to understand the relationship between these fundamental concepts and the realities they designate so as to get clear about what is the relationship between quality and relevance, value, intelligibility, being, right? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and you can say, well, why can't we do that with science? Because science presupposes many of these concepts in yes. order to undertake it. So I'm a scientist. I love science. I practice yes. it. I'm not, I'm not, oh, science. That's not yes. me. I love yeah. science. Yeah. But I also think we have to do metaphysics. Like Whitehead argued, because science depends on these fundamental concepts. Right. It presupposes them. It presupposes yes. them. Yes. And therefore, you have to do something. You have to have something, a rational investigation that clarifies their relationship and makes them plausibly intelligible to you if you're even going to do any kind of science. Right. That's metaphysics. Yes. Physics yeah. isn't about spewing bullshitty ideas about <laughs> reality. Yeah. That, that's not, I mean, that's not proper metaphysics. Do people do that and call it metaphysics? Of course they do. Yes. But people misname things all over the place. Yes. And we should, like, we, like, oh, you know, you know, I, I, I'm doing science. No, you're not doing science. That's not science. Yes. Right? Uh, you know, astrology is a science. No, it's not. Right. Things yeah. like that. Right. So the fact that people misuse the term metaphysics shouldn't prejudice against talking about metaphysics. I think that's a very important distinction to make. Yes. Was it the first philosophy? Is that what Aristotle called it? Um, so, uh, yeah. It Socrates, it's, it's, maybe? It, well, I mean, so the word philosophy is actually invented by Pythagoras. Mm. Metaphysics comes from the term comes from, uh, from Aristotle, mm. but Plato is basically doing metaphysics. The thing mm. that we have in our culture, and we even use it with subjective and objective reality. Mm -hmm. So as you say reality, you're invoking metaphysics. Yes. But what we do is we make our model of reality totally subservient to our epistemology, our model of mm. how we know. Mm. That we get and we got we get that when we think of that move as natural, but we get that from yes. Descartes. Right. And so when you're ch when you're challenging subject objectivity, you're simultaneously challenging uh, 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 metaphysics, ontology, right? That's your study of being. And you're also challenging an epistemology, a theory of how we know. And again, science can't tell us a theory of how we know, right? It presupposes an epistemology in order to engage in science. Yes, 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 yes. So maybe the one thing we could say about, uh, subject object is that it's, I mean, pretty much embedded in all, all the way down in our language, even yeah. right. Yeah. The psychotechnology of literacy, it's fully embedded in at least English. Yeah. It's the only language I know. Um, and it, that comes with certain distortions perhaps, where it's like, we're, we, we assume the outside world is objective and we assume that all of us perceive it subjectively, but it's yeah. a little more gray than that. Perhaps. Well, it's not only a little bit more gray than that. That's a disaster. <laughs> because, like, let's go back to why you want to do metaphysics. Well, at least one of the reasons why you want to do it. So I'm doing science, and I'm producing this worldview of objectivity. Mm -hmm. But I'm doing it 
I'm going to use the Cartesian language in order to problematize it, but Mm -hmm. I'm doing it as a subjective meaning making consciousness. Mm -hmm. Subjective. So what is the one thing I can't get an objective account of that subjectivity? Right. So what is the one thing I can't actually explain with science? How I generate science in the first place. Yes, exactly. That's a deep problem. That's yes. a problem you get if you if you do this really hard and fast subject object divide. Yes. And this Notice, is sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, please. Well, I was just gonna say, I was gonna say, remember when we talked about relevance? If I say the relevance is in the object, I'm making a mistake. No, it isn't. It's mm-hmm. where's the relevance in this? Right. Like, well, I'm going to measure it. No, because one minute it's relevant, next minute it's not. Oh, well, yeah. it's just used subjectively. It is. If it's just subjectively, then I couldn't ever be mistaken. I couldn't say that's relevant and be wrong, but frequently I am. Right, right, right. I realize right. this. So it's neither subjective because I can be wrong about it, nor is it objective because it's not in the objects. It's between. And so it falls between the gap of subjectivity and objectivity. And right. I would put it to you, this is a rather bold claim, if there's a deep connection, and it seems that there is between our, sorry, within our discussion, between mm-hmm. relevance and value and economics, all of economics is gonna ultimately fall down into that chasm. Yes, yeah, agreed. Um, so that that's an interesting way to put it is that Science can tell us so much about the world, except how we generate science itself, which is like the most yes. fundamental thing. Um, and the, the other thing I think of here is that so any system of thought, it has to have an an axiom somewhere outside of itself, right? It has to be rooted in something um, that's, I guess, the would you say it's a priori in a way? Like we don't know the a well, priori. Oh, that's a Kantian solution. But, but yeah. I held up this book by uh, Gerson, who's mm-hmm. a colleague of mine, Lloyd Gerson, at the University of Toronto. And mm-hmm. yes, all of all of us, all Jordan Peterson, myself, <laughs> Gerson, we, we all come from the University of Toronto. It's a great university. <laughs> I'm very proud to be from the University of Toronto. Very, very proud to be from the University of Toronto. Uh, so Gerson says we have we 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 we've got it. We we do it the opposite the way the Greeks did. Mm. The Greeks. So we say we try to figure out from sort of inside what is knowledge, and mm. then once I figure out what knowledge is, I'll tell you what the world is. Mm. Right, right, right. And then the Greeks say you've got this all wrong. You have to ask yourself what does the world have to be like in order for knowledge to be possible. Right. That's a very different question. So we start from what we call subjectivity. The Greeks started from the presupposition, and they're both presuppositions, that the world is intelligible. Why did they start there? Because if the world is not intelligible, I am reduced to an absolute kind of solipsistic skepticism. Yes. Yes. Soon as I say, but I know this, I'm I'm presupposing that there is an, there is something that is intelligible it has certain prop it it really it really possesses those properties because if i say i'm only giving it those properties then i'm still trapped inside the solipsistic skepticism right try living there try living there <laughs> right so the greeks basically say no 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 
and then you know, and then Heidegger brings it back with where mm. we're always in the world. We so they 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 say, look, let's take it for granted that intelligibility must exist. Mm -hmm. That means we have to then ask the question: What must the world be like? Not just what must I be like, mm -hmm. but what must the world be like, and what must I be like? in order for there to be intelligibility. Mm -hmm, That's a mm -hmm. very different way from Descartes. I'm going to start from I think, therefore yes, I am. I think, therefore I am. Right, yeah, right, right. my yeah. way out. This reminds me of the uh, famous Einstein quote, which I might be getting slightly wrong. Uh, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. Right. Right. So. You, right. And, 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 uh, and, and you either, and, and I mean, we could get into the very complicated philosophy about that, but you know, so, uh, you know, people like Plato and Aristotle and Plotinus and also Spinoza and recently, you know, Whitehead, somebody mm -hmm. you quoted, um, uh, and, you know, and, and Einstein's deeply influenced by Spinoza mm. is the idea that, that we, that for something to be and for it to be intelligible, those are bound up together. Right. Yes. Those are bound up together. So, the very, the very structural functional organization that makes this be what it is, act the way it does, actuality, be yes. the way it is, give it the potential to do things it could do, yes. right, is also the structural functional organization that makes it knowable to me. Right. That it, so it's intelligibility is both how it is organized to be itself yes. and how yeah. it is organized to be known by me. That's right. a Greek way of thinking. So interesting. What? Okay, this is somewhat of a fundamental definition, but I think it's very important. One that I actually your series helped me see differently, or maybe even better, just the concept of being. How and you yeah. had an excellent definition for it. Um, uh, if you could just describe being or define being, being, please. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have a definition for it, uh, but for for me. Um, that's what I was, uh, in a sense, trying to do. When, when we're talking about the being of something, we're not just talk. We're not excluding, but we are not reduced to talking about its existence. Mm -hmm. Right? We're talking about, right? As I said, we're talking. Uh, I, I'm being. I, there's philosophers. No matter what I say, they're going to be jumping up and down and screaming. And so I'm trying to be as <laughs> as, as, as sort of conciliatory as, as I could possibly be. Um, but to, to use the chess analogy earlier, you know, there's no perfect strategy in chess. I don't think there's any no, perfect right. definitions in this domain necessarily. We're just trying to point towards the patterns. So I see being as an inexhaustible fount of intelligibility. Mm. So that Reality, we never run, so in addition to things existence, we, we, we never run out of things being able to come into existence. And they don't come into it in existence chaotically and haphazardly. They come into existence in an ordered, intelligible fashion. Mm. And the universe is comprehensively intelligible. It doesn't mean we can know everything. Those aren't the same claims. Right, right. right? So it's not only that everything, you said it earlier, it's not only that everything is emerging in a self-organizing fashion. It's also that somehow possibility is structured so that mm. when things emerge, they emerge in an intelligible, ordered, predictable, understandable way. 
Right. But that is also bound up with the, the way in which everything is, right? Structurally, functionally, organ- yes. everything is self-organizing. Everything yes. is emerging in its self-organization. And also, it's also being, it's also being, you could use emanation. There's also mm. the top-down constraints on what possibilities are, or are, are actual, uh, that's not the right word, are really available to mm. it, really available. So the idea is being encompasses both real possibility, real actuality, and the ordered relationship between them so that we have an inexhaustible fount of intelligibility mm. more and more and more and more and more and more. Interesting. Okay. That helps a lot. Um, the, have you heard or read of Hoffman's book, the case against reality? Yes. Uh, well, no, I haven't read it. I know uh, of his argument. Uh, I was supposed to, I was supposed to have a three-way conversation here with him and Bernardo Castro. Mm. And unfortunately he wasn't uh, available uh, for last minute reasons. I think the two two conversations I had with Bernardo were fantastic. He's amazing. Uh, We disagree in some fundamental ways, but we also agree in fundamental ways. Yeah. I I know of Hoffman. It makes me, I mean, the way you're describing this, again, that conformity in a way, it does seem that this might be the gateway to finding the deeper relationship between consciousness and reality that there's somehow, I don't know. So, so, so let's, let's do, let's take, Let's take the conformity idea back to participatory knowing. Mm. Participatory knowing is knowing by being, not by mm. being conscious, but knowing by being. Yes. So when I like when I'm doing relevance realization, let me just I can't do the whole theory, but I'll just do a quick gist of it. Mm. Let's do it with your attention. Notice how you have two opponent opponent things going on in your attention. There's one force that's trying, it's almost yin and yang, right? There's mm. one force that's trying to make you do this. Mm-hmm. Right, focus in, and there's, yeah. and but your mind is wandering, and your mind goes off, and mm-hmm. and you do this, and so I, I hit my own mic. <laughs> <laughs> right, so you're you're constantly doing this, you're constantly introducing variation yeah. with, right, with your mind wandering, and then selecting the best, yes, from yeah. right with your focusing of yes. attention, and then from that you associate out. And then you select down. You know what I'm mimicking? This is Dar- mimicking. Darwinian. Almost, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. And that's my theory of what relevance realization yeah. is. Relevance realization is a process in your brain. But remember, adaptation is between you and the world. Yes. That is basically speeding up evolution. Yes. And just like evolution constantly redesigns how creatures are fitted to their environment, right. your brain is rapidly evolving your cognitive fittedness your optimal gripping on the environment. Right. So, so generating notice, generating variations and then filtering out the misfit yes, and yes. keeping the fit. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and constantly designing new fitness from previous fitness. That's where right. the acceptation comes in. Yes, but notice, is. notice what's happening here. When I use this just as an example, right? I am not just thinking about the principles of life because evolution is one of the fundamental principles of life right i'm instantiating it i'm embodying it (laughs) i'm speechless on that one it's incredible i'm participating in it yes participatory knowing deep participatory knowing for me that's aristotle's conformity theory 
the yeah. principles of life, the form of life, where form means the structural functional organization, the principles of life, the principles of evolution are the same principles by which I know life. Yes. So it's fractal, perhaps? Well, something pattern like on that. Pattern Yeah. I, wow. That's the conformity theory of knowing. Now, notice that that's like this. That's knowing like this. Yes. Right? Right. So Descartes and Locke have a different model. I'm inside this little closet, my consciousness, right. and I get postcards called representations, <laughs> yeah. and I try to start through the postcards to figure out what, the, what it's like out there. Right. That's a very different model. Right. That's so interesting. Wow. Okay. That is what I'm going to be thinking about a lot is that anytime we're reflecting on these principles, we're also engaging them. I, we yeah. are them, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 And that's the Greek idea. The Greek yes. idea is right that, that that conformity ultimately must be possible. The principles governing reality and the principles governing cognition have to be the same. I have to be participating to use Plato's original term, right. or I or no knowledge is ultimately possible. And that's the problem with the Cartesian and Lockean view, right? Yes. Like the yeah. rationalist says, if I just get in the right logical order, I'll, I'll get the knowledge. And we already discuss, discussed why that's not going to work. Yes. The empiricist says, no, no, if I just trust, right? My, my, the, the, these postcards are somehow, and then you get Hume, and Hume's the great empiricist. Says, no, you don't know anything about anything. Yeah. Right, and that's what's wrong. To come back to it with yes. the subjective-objective divide, it removes the conformity possibility. So, I'm way out on a limb here, but it seems then that one of the things I've said recently is that I, a definition of life—I don't know if I got it somewhere, I thought of it, whatever—is that we're it's basically a survival strategy propagating through flesh. Um. Then is it so if we are these principles, does is that closer to a definition of ultimate reality? Is that it somehow principles it means, manifesting these yeah, uh, these it, images we call reality? Well, it means that it means that at deep level, and this is what Socratic know thyself means, it doesn't mean masturbate your autobiography. <laughs> it does not mean that. It means that what we've been talking about here at these deepest levels, like know thyself in the sense of almost like the owner's manual or the or the construction manual. You're knowing the principles uh, yeah. by which you are, and knowing those is bound up with knowing the principles by which reality is. Of the unit because they're one and the same, right? The principles yes. even that govern the universe, the quote unquote objective universe, to some extent, there's some reflection or intonation of you, those in us well you're self-organizing and you're autopoetic and you're evolving and yeah. you're capable of like like like, like there's ways of like think about it at, and this is a, a principle from plotinus at every level you can see that conformity so you you you're a physical thing Phusis, the greek word phusis means to emerge yeah. moment by moment you are emerging out of yes. the, out of the quantum realm, but so yes. is the rest of the universe. Yeah, and then you are your suke. You are a living thing, right? And, 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 and so, right, self organization principles are out there everywhere. We've been talking about them, yes. right? And then and then right, so patterns, 
There are real patterns within and without. That's your intelligence picking up. Your intelligence makes patterns to conform to the patterns of the world. Right. But those patterns, those patterns are also patterned, and we call that a world. And you yes. have an inner world of consciousness, but there's the outer world, right? And they they both reflect that principle of the yeah. patterning of patterning. And then behind it is some principle of ultimate integration, unity that makes it all ordered and hang together, equally yes. within and without. That, so that, by the way, that's, that's Neoplatonism, by the way. Is that So is this the ultimate principle behind the veil of reality, if you will? Is this where we get into Plato's cave when you're talking about Neoplatonism? Is it? Yeah, so huh. learning to... Learning to properly, in both senses of the word, realize that participatory identity at all of these levels. You can even do it as a contemplative practice, right? And the point is, when, when you're doing that, you're starting to, well, you're starting to realize what's deeply real without, but that is not independent of realizing what is most deeply real within. within. Yeah, wow. And that's reciprocal opening. You're yes. opening up the world and you're opening up yourself. And that's the fall in love with being as you also come to see things more and more clearly as they are. That's mm -hmm. coming out of Plato's case. And this is why the sages and the psychonauts describe the ultimate substance of the universe as love, right? This reciprocal opening at a very yes. deep level. Wow. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> what an incredible journey. And um, just under three hours. Uh, I, yeah, I'm kind of speechless. This has been quite mind blowing. Um, the, the one <laughs> definition we didn't hit on was acceptation, which I think is very important. It's been underlying a lot of this, but, um, maybe just a quick description of that. And then we'll, um, we'll, we'll close out. Sure. So we've talked about, and this is goes to the work of Michael Anderson and DeHaan and others. Um, and again, this idea that the brain is, the brain is instantiating the very principles, um, you know, of evolution in, in very profound ways. Mm -hmm. So the, so in evolution, biological evolution, organisms don't generate novelty from scratch. Mm -hmm. That's, very risky and very costly bioeconomically, right? And, yes. the, and there, this, this is wound up with other work around the robustness paradox and how that's been resolved. And I won't get into that right now, but let's, I'll use a very, I use this example all the time because it's very apparent to people. Um, what am I using my tongue to do right now to speak? Yeah. Tongues did not evolve for speech. Many organisms have tongues and they don't speak. So what did, huh. tongue, what did tongues evolve for? They evolved from moving food around in my mouth to improve mastication. Yeah. Mastication, by the way. Chewing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, chewing and right? starting digestion. And, and my tongue, not all tongues, but a lot of tongues also have poison uh, and food detecting nerves. So what I've got is a highly flexible muscle that's got a lot of sensitivity to it, a lot of nerve endings. So it can move in a very rapid and precise way inside my mouth to yeah. detect poison. Yeah and to manipulate food. But that is a really good instrument for breaking up the passage of sound waves in speech. Wow, interesting. So my tongue, so building, a, I don't have to build a speech thing from scratch. Yes. I can take a tongue, right? And so this is what people also talk about with pre-adaptations. I can take a, a, a tongue 
that I'm going to use this in scare quotes for obvious reasons that was designed by evolution for speech, mm-hmm. right? But like everything else, it's combinatorially explosive. It has many potential yes. side effects. Yes. And it's possible that those side effects can be coordinated into a new machine. That's makes, acceptation. Makes perfect sense because it's bioeconomically reasonable, right? To use yes. something you've already created for another purpose than to create something from scratch. This is the same thing an, any reasonable entrepreneur would do, right? Repurpose a tool. Yeah. Right. Circuit reuse in computers, for example. Yes. And Michael Anderson uses that. Now, here's the proposal. Your brain is doing that too. Your brain builds mm-hmm. little machines, little circuits, whatever metaphor mm-hmm. we want to use, for doing one thing and then re-exacts them or exacts them, I should say, mm-hmm. and repurposes them for doing other things. So I take this, uh, you can see that first across, across time, but you can also mm-hmm. see it within individuals. But across species, like within our species, the area of the brain for doing fine manipulation of my right hand mm-hmm. gets exacted for the fine manipulation of syntax within speech. Right. Yes. Yeah, they co-evolve together, right? This, That's why I yes. gesture when I speak. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. And that was this. Go ahead. ahead. No, no, please. I was just going to say, but the idea is, so just like I said, you know, in relevance realization, the brain is constantly evolving its fittedness. What Michael Anderson is arguing is we're making a mistake if we think there's a particular function of this particular area. Mm. Actually, all areas are being multiply exacted to Mm. be repurposed, circuit reuse, massive circuit reuse. Mm. Interesting. Was this related in this acceptation to you described the use of missile weapons as being yeah. one of the things that distinguished humans or made us successful, I guess, ecologically yeah, successful. Yeah. And that uh, led to the enhanced or accelerated development of the prefrontal cortex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your ability, and, and it even shows up in your language, metaphors mm. are kind of fossils in certain ways, right? Yeah. So how how do you describe a long-term important task it's a project yeah it's a oh, project. projects interesting yes so it's we started project. to look no, and further notice across space yeah. and time and we exapted that to planning yeah exactly but notice notice two words we used earlier subjective that means to throw under subject to throw under ah. objective to throw against to throw ah. against that's amazing. When I heard that, I don't know which episode that was in, but we could maybe just leave the audience with this. When you, if you just listen to anyone talking about anything ever and start counting the metaphors, yeah, it's incredible. I think the other ones you named were like supervision, yep, substance, yep. right? To stand under, yep. to understand. understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, we're just rife. We're just are we live in metaphor basically. So I would argue that metaphor this is different from so that's what's called conceptual metaphor lake mm-hmm. and johnson and i published some criticisms of them i think the phenomena is real i think most conceptual metaphor is an example of this kind of exaptation that we're talking mm. about that's why we talk about balance justice as balance because yes. we're taking the cerebellum this huge machine for all this very complicated balance and we're trying to exact it to help us process the coordinating all these variables within distributed cognition that we call justice. Wow. So almost pulling up these elements of procedural knowledge that we know more deeply into a semantic 
words. You're, 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 you're reaching, you're reaching, you're, you're reaching all the way down into the participatory through the perspectival and the pr procedural, and you're constantly exacting from all of them. Wow. I would argue. Incredible. John, this has been one of the best conversations I've ever had. Um, I'd like to think we're just getting started too, because we made it halfway through page one. <laughs> it's probably a 20 page uh, outline I've got here. So thank you so much um, here. I'll, maybe Robert. real quick, if you just tell the audience where they can find you, I know we're going to do more recordings like this, but just in case um, anyone's interested to, to find out more about your work. So, I mean, the best place is to go just onto my YouTube channel and start with Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. That's the lecture series that you've been referring to a lot. I recommend looking at the other series. I have a, a, a dialogical series because dial, Dialectic into the Logos is a project I'm working on right now. It's very important to me. Uh, it's called Voices with Raveki, where I, I do something like what I did with you today, mm. right? It's, it's very much this back and forth and we're, mm -hmm, we're playing mm -hmm. off against each other. And it's like, it's like cognitive jazz. Yes, uh, and, yeah, yeah. Right? And then I have two, uh, two Cogsci series that are done. Uh, one on consciousness with Greg Enriquez, Untangling the World Knot. Uh, one with Greg Enriquez and Christopher Pietro called The Elusive Eye, capital I, The Nature and Function of the Self. It's all about what is the self? How does uh -huh. What's its nature? How does it function? Uh, and then we're, I'm doing two right now that are in process. One with Guy... Uh, Senstock and Zevi Slavin on um, Dialogos and Mystical Realization. And then another one with, it's going to be coming out soon with Greg Enriquez and Zach, um, Zachary Stein uh, about, um, about transformation, the problem of transformation and how we need a new meta psychology to be true to the human capacity for transformation. And what does that mean for things like education? Wow. So, Super so. interesting. So just for the audio listeners, I'm going to spell your last name if they want to look you up. So it's John Verveke. Uh, tell right. me if I spell this right. V-E-R-V-A-E-K-E. -E -E. That's exactly right. That's okay. Exactly. Uh, John, thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Robert. This was a great pleasure. This is uh, and it, the, the, the three hours flew by and I look forward very much to our next conversation. Awesome. Likewise.